Now, as you look at a text like this, one of the things that we can realize and recognize quite quickly is that the devil, our greatest enemy, savors and salivates over each and every opportunity given him to test and to tempt God's people. He jumps for joy over each set of eyes that he is able to blind to the truth of the gospel. And with considerable cunning and devious scheming, he hatches his plans and he launches his attacks. And he's been at this for thousands of years and he is quite crafty in his devices and in his strategies. And listen, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to temptation, but there is, in every temptation, a singular goal to promote and produce in all of us a distrust for our Heavenly Father's love, of our Heavenly Father's care, concern, provision for, and protection of His children. The enemy seeks to shake you in that, to rattle you from that, and to keep you from coming to the Lord because you don't trust Him. And we witnessed this way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? When the scheming and duplicitous serpent said to the woman, Eve, did God actually say, this is Genesis 3 verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? First off, the enemy here misrepresented and misquoted the actual words of God, which were, in Gen- we, we see in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, this is what they were. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So you see, the words of God, the words of our heavenly Father, stressed his abundant provision for Adam and Eve. You have every tree in the garden at your disposal. Eat, enjoy my good abundant provision for you. Eat and enjoy my good supply. But the enemy, using his strategic designs, endeavored to turn Eve's attention from the Lord's abundant provision to the restriction of God from one, of one tree. And Eve, as a result of Satan's shifting her focus from the abundant provision of God to his restriction of the one tree, she lost sight of the goodness of her heavenly Father. And she believed. She fell for the lies of the enemy. She distrusted God as she reached out, took the fruit, ate, and gave some to Adam who was with her, and he also ate. And Satan has continually done such utilize this these strategies throughout scripture we see it and we'll see it a little bit today we see it as satan promoted grumbling and a lack of trust in the lord in israel as they trekked through the wilderness and we see a great example of this in the life of king david satan set his sights on king david and remember king david was the lord's anointed and satan incited david to sinfulness leading David to momentarily transfer his trust in the Lord, trust from the Lord, trust in the Lord's protection, to trust in the size and the scale of the army at his disposal. We see it in 1 Chronicles one twenty one, where we read this. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. 
And David, as a result of this numbering of Israel, found out in 1 Chronicles 21.5 that there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, there were another 470,000 men who drew the sword, meaning he had one and a half million fighting men in the armies of Israel. And this incitement of the enemy to distrust the God's protection of Israel and shift that trust to horses and to chariots and to men who draw the sword angered the Lord. And we read in 1 Chronicles 21, 7 that God was displeased with this thing and as a result, he struck Israel. But thankfully, David realized very quickly the error of his act and he immediately prayed to the Lord saying in 1 Chronicles 21, 7, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. David is a great example for us in this. He fell for a trap of the enemy. He fell for an incitement of Satan to sin. But instead of allowing that to cause a downward spiral in his life, he recognized it, he ran to the Lord, he confessed his sin, and he repented in the full knowledge of the fact that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Satan also works and labors to blind the eyes of unbelievers all over the world. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4.4, or 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan labors to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Apostle Paul, you've got to remember, was quite familiar with the work of the enemy as Satan had given him, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, given him a thorn in the flesh. And so earlier on in 2 Corinthians, Paul counseled God's people to forgive those who cause us pain and heartache, heartache so that, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not uh, ignorant of his designs. So Paul here gives us a call to be aware, to be on guard against, to watch out for the schemes of the enemy in our lives. It's a call to battle against them in the power of our great, wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And know this, when it comes to you specifically, Satan will use whatever means he can to accomplish his foul purpose if it's fearful threatenings that move us to distrust our Father, if that's what will get you to distrust the Lord, He will use them. David's life, again, is a good example. Throughout his life, enemies sought to destroy him at every turn. Enemies sought to, dis- to eliminate him as king over all Israel in order to a- advance to his position or to ascend to his position as king over Israel. But David, being a man after God's own heart, consistently turned to the Lord for protection, turned to the Lord for deliverance, turned to the Lord for wisdom to navigate and overcome the wicked plans of his enemies, something that we should be consistently doing as well, turning to the Lord and asking for his wisdom to consistently navigate through the temptations and and plans of the enemy in our lives. And David, in Psalm 141, uses a number of metaphors that aptly describe both the strategies of those arrayed against him and the strategies of our great enemy Satan as he aligns himself against us. Look at it, Psalm 141, verses 8 to 10. David writes, 
My eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. So in these short verses, David describes his enemies in terms very similar to that which Scripture uses to describe Satan, a hunter bent on utilizing everything at their disposal to catch and to kill their prey, which in this psalm is David himself. And he describes their plans using three pictures, that of a trap, that of a snare, and that of a net. We will be getting to Jesus' temptation very soon, but just uh, this is our opening here. A trap and a snare and a net. The trap laid for him carries the idea of some device that is set out to catch and keep an animal in a pen or to seize a bird with a net that, from which it cannot escape and this for the ultimate purpose of putting an end to the life of the prisoner. Now David also uses the uh, metaphor of a snare. A snare is a baited trap designed to lure in, designed to attract, designed to ultimately destroy an unsuspecting victim by choking the life out of it. Snares are used to catch all sorts of animals, rabbits, wolves, for example, as some delicious eye-catching bait is placed just after a string or a wire that is looped in hopes of catching the animal rushing for food. And when the neck of the animal gets into the snare, it tightens as the animal tries to get out. And as they struggle to get free, it continues to tighten, closes around their neck, and it suffocates them. And throughout Scripture, we realize that sin is both the bait and the snare. Satan is a master of holding sin out to us and amplifying for us the momentary enjoyment of that particular act, of that particular sin while hiding the penalty and hiding the consequence, which is that sin will choke the life out of us. So don't give in. And finally, David uses the image of a net here, like a fish, like a fishing net, where the fish following the flow of the water, or even those that would swim against it like salmon in spawning season, they tread towards the net and they get tangled in it. And as they wriggle to get free, and as they try to get free, they only find themselves being more captured and more entangled as they attempt to shake free. And sin tends to do this to us, right? Satan wants us to move in the direction of sin because sin tends to entangle us, doesn't it? We get in and we think we can easily get out. But all sin does is lead to ever-increasing entanglement as we find it difficult to get out. But that wasn't what we were told at the beginning, is it? We were, we were convinced we would be able to get out of it easily. But sin is like a net that entangles. And it leads to increasing sin. As we find ourselves entangled by it, then we start to lie about it. Then we start to hide from God as a result of it. And we start to live powerless, weak, hypocritical lives. And you see how the enemy moves us from thinking sin is okay to practicing it to being completely caught in it to living a powerless Christian life. The only way out of the net is to plead with the Lord. Our God is good. He will untangle us from the net and set us back to swimming. 
David uses these three pictures to describe the intentions of the enemies that surrounded him. But these also illustrate for us the designs of our more substantial enemy, Satan. If he needs to, he will set violent traps in his attempts to bring about our destruction. However, that's not the only method that he uses. Some are not taken in by the fear of death. There are some truly courageous people out there who do not fear death. They do not fear enemies encamped around them. And so Satan will utilize other tools in his toolbox to bring about their downfall. And one of the most obvious ways that he works for our demise in North America is by simply using our desire for comfort, familiarity, and abundance against us. He will ensure that our path to the grave and our path to our ultimate destruction is relatively unsurprising, fairly easy, and relaxed. It reminds me of a true illustration that Russell Moore uses in his book, it's a very good book, called Tested and Tried. He tells about a scientist who figured out that the best and he that figured out the best and most humanitarian way to lead cows to slaughter which is information that the livestock industry desperately desires and paid many dollars to figure out because when an animal is highly stressed a lot of times it releases hormones into its meat before it is slaughtered which degrade the quality of the meat they sell which inevitably impacts the bottom line and when the bottom line is impacted they will spare no expense to figure out how to solve that problem and so this scientist was enlisted to help solve that problem and she concluded that novelty distressed the cows new things distressed the cows so with that in mind slaughterhouses in order to keep the cattle relaxed ought to eliminate from the cow's sight anything that they are not used to seeing she said that if the cattle were for example were used to seeing bright shiny yellow raincoats slung over the fence or the gates every day when the cows entered into the milking parlor there'd be no problem if when the cow got to the slaughterhouse that same yellow coat was put on the gate into the slaughterhouse but if the cow came to the slaughterhouse and saw a yellow jacket for the first time it would resist and it would react negatively up to this point it had been commonplace for slaughterhouse herders to use cattle prods to move cows and to yell at them get going get going however all you really needed to do to move them to get them where you wanted them to go was to keep them contented and keep them comfortable if you give them that they will go wherever you lead them don't surprise them don't yell at them don't hurt them while they are on their path to their demise. And this scientist then devised a new technology where cows aren't prodded off the truck, they're not kicked off a truck, they're not yelled at to get off a truck, but instead are led in silence up a ramp in comfort all the way to their death. They follow this comfortable path that's set out before them, and they go through what are called squeeze shoots. And as the cow goes through the squeeze shoot, it's a gentle pressure device that mimics the mother's sweet nuzzle. And they continue going down this slowly bending track, a track that has no surprises, a track that has no sudden turns, a track that is set up to be as comfortable and, and, uh, and uh, familiar as possible, a track that is set up 
to give the cows the sensation that they are headed to the same place that they have been a thousand times before. And as they move along the path, they remain unaware of the conveyor that slowly and gently lifts them upward. And then, before they know it, they are quickly and precisely struck between the eyes, and in a minute they are turned from livestock into meat. And they were never aware enough to react, never aware enough to struggle, never aware enough to fight. The comfort of it all, the ease of it all, made them unaware that their lives were about to be taken from them. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I would all be in the same spiritual condition as these cattle, led along by the prince of the world on a comfortably charted course to our demise. But Jesus... Jesus came, as the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil so that that is not our reality. Jesus came and began dismantling the devil's work right from the beginning. As he descended from heaven, as he took on flesh and made his dwelling among us, God had come to us in the person of Jesus Christ for the express purpose of liberating his people from the terrible bondage to and grip of Satan. And this would ultimately culminate in Jesus' death on the cross when he bore the sins of the world in and on himself, appeasing and pacifying the wrath of God on our behalf. Meaning that for all who come to him in trust and in faith, Jesus bore the penalty for you. Jesus bore the punishment that was due for you at the cross on himself. And upon faith in Jesus Christ, listen to the words of Paul in, the, in his epistle to the Colossians. Upon faith in Christ, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And as we have been learning over the past few weeks, as important as Christ's wrath-bearing death is, we must not overlook the importance of his perfect life. The perfect life that he lived for us. The perfect life that fulfilled the entirety of the law. The perfect life where Jesus succeeded, where everyone before him and everyone after him has failed so that he might apply that perfection to his people, securing their, securing our, securing your righteousness a righteousness required by our Heavenly Father. And Jesus revealed this goal right from the beginning of his ministry. Remember, Jesus had been baptized at the Jordan by John the Baptist. He submitted himself to a baptism of repentance that he didn't need, that he himself didn't require, because he is, Jesus is, and always has been, and always will be completely, perfectly, and wonderfully sinless. Jesus, in calling on John to baptize him, revealed one of the great purposes of his coming to earth, that of identifying with us poor, wretched, and helpless sinners. Sinners who on our own, try as we might, can never in any way, in any shape, in any form, win or secure the righteousness of God on our own. We cannot secure the righteousness that God requires of any of us, of anyone who would enter into his joy, who would enter into his presence. It's just not possible. Jesus came to ensure that we 
who are unable to turn the tide of God's favor in our direction, no matter what we do, can be given the righteousness that is required for us to enter into God's presence. Jesus came to solve this problem for us. He came to fill up all that is lacking in us in his perfect law-fulfilling life and in his sin-bearing, atoning death. So, as Jesus arrives, as Jesus, our great example, our precious Savior, arrives at the Jordan to be baptized, he is identifying himself with sinners he has come to save. And immediately, immediately after his baptism, the Spirit led or drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested by the same devil who uses his cunning and his strategies and his craftiness to bring about our downfall. And Satan applied all of those strategies now to Jesus, who is our great representative while he was in the wilderness. And this testing is reminiscent of humanity's beginnings, both in the garden and Israel's beginnings in the wilderness. Jesus reenacts both during his wilderness wanderings. And unlike Adam, unlike Israel, who both failed to trust God, who both gave in to the temptations and wiles of the enemy, who both ultimately proved inadequate, Jesus triumphed where they failed. And as you look at the text and you see that the Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness, but it was the devil that tempted him. It is for me, as I consider that text more and more and more, such a comfort to know that in a world where Satan seems to run roughshod, promoting and inspiring human evil, human suffering, human pain, that he is not ultimately in control. And that even the worst of Satan's works, works that Satan intends for evil, for destruction, and for chaos. Even all of those works ultimately bring about the plans and the purposes of the Lord for his glory and our good. What Satan means for evil, God always, always, even if we cannot understand, even if we don't understand, even if we can't see how, God always turns it to and for his glory and for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And in this section of Matthew, it is made so absolutely clear to us that even Satan's desperate attempts to do to Jesus as he had done to Adam and Israel before, they only served to A, reveal to the world that Jesus is indeed the faithful Son of God who is fully dedicated and devoted to fulfilling and obeying his Father's will, and B, that Jesus successfully navigates each of Satan's nasty tests. As he does so, he is securing for us the perfect righteousness that is required by the Father for all who would enter into his joyful, holy presence. Satan's tests, while he ultimately means them for evil, for chaos, and for destruction, only serve to bolster and fortify that which will ultimately be our salvation. Amen and amen. God is truly sovereign. And Satan's first attempt, like we looked at last week, to promote distrust of the Father in Christ is the call to turn stones into bread. Satan came to Jesus when he was physically hungry and suggested that Jesus provide for himself. Satan was, in essence, saying, if you're God's son, you shouldn't have to endure this difficult trial. I mean, hasn't your father provided for his people before? Don't you remember in the desert when God provided for his son? Why isn't he providing for you? Why is he not doing it this time? What kind of father would let his son starve? 
And as a parent, we can understand that temptation. We can understand the pull of what Satan's doing here. Satan looks at Jesus and is basically saying either he is an uncaring father or else he would want you to provide for yourself. Surely that's his will for you, right? You have it in your power, Jesus, to turn these stones into bread. You don't think that your father would want that? You don't think that your father would want you to use your divine authority to secure food for your stomach when you are so dangerously close to starvation as you are? Listen, appease your appetites just this once. God will understand. Your father will understand. You're hungry. Eat according to your timing and according to your needs. But Jesus rebuffed this temptation, proving that Jesus would rather be hungry in obedience to the Lord than satisfied with bread outside of it. And now this morning, as we come to the second of Satan's temptations, that of Satan calling on Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, we read this in 5 and 6. Matthew 4, 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written... He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. If you're anything like me, the f- before I actually studied and looked into what these words were saying, it's a little confusing, right? If you're like me, this seems like a very odd thing to tempt or test somebody with, doesn't it? But imagine the scene. Satan has just tempted Jesus or tested Jesus with a call to turn stones into bread and to provide for himself outside of the will of God. And now Satan once again attempts to sow distrust in the Son for the Father. In this particular instance, it's as though Satan looks at Jesus and says, after Jesus has just quoted God's word to rebuff the temptation set on him beforehand, it's as though Satan looks at Jesus and says, Ah! So you trust your father, do you? Well, I don't see why you should. I mean, what proof do you have that he cares for you? How do you know that he loves you and is looking out for you? How do you know that you're not putting all of your eggs in the wrong basket in living on the bread of God's word? Are you sure? Are you sure that he would save you if you were in trouble? Are you sure that you really are his beloved son in whom he is well pleased? Are you really? Well, then let's put it to the test. Test the promises of God in Scripture that say he will protect you. And Satan still uses this temptation to ensnare us, doesn't he? During the times when God doesn't give us the bread that we think we need, that we think we deserve, we begin to doubt his fatherly care, his fatherly protection, his fatherly provision for us. There are even times when I have sat with people and listened as they blamed God for their circumstance. And they called God's goodness into question as a result of their difficulty. But listen, when we are tempted to do such a thing, that is the work of the enemy. It's a sign that we have forgotten that God does indeed care and if we would only take a second to count our many and numerous blessings we would understand that 
Don't fall for the same trap that Satan brought to Eve. Don't fall for the same trap that says, listen, don't look at all of the abundant blessings that God has given you. Look at this one circumstance in your life where God isn't giving you what you think you want. Limit the scope of God's care to that one need that encompasses your life and your thoughts right now. Forgetting that God has proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that he does love his children. And he proved this to us by sending his son, who is the ultimate gift, the supreme revelation of God's love and commitment to bringing you and I who love him home. And yet, we are tempted by the enemy to test God's care from a here and now perspective, as if, as if the reception of more money in our bank accounts a nicer home or healing from a disease would prove God's love more than his sending of Christ to save us from the consequences and penalties for our sins. You get it wrong when you do that. It's a lie and a deception of the enemy. Don't buy into those lies. But there's another dimension to this test here as well. Another attempt to lead Jesus into being a Messiah in Israel without going to the cross. But fulfilling the expectations, instead fulfilling the expectations of awaiting Israel then and there with a tremendous sign from heaven. Look where Satan took Jesus, to the holy city. See that there in the text, to the holy city or Jerusalem. Jerusalem is many times throughout Scripture referred to by that title, the holy city. Isaiah 52.1, for example, says this, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. And we see Revelation 11 too. John refers to Jerusalem as the holy city there and a number of times in between. In taking Jesus to the holy city, the devil brought him to the center of Israel's life, of Israel's history where the majority of those for whom he is the Messiah live, breathe, and move. But what's more, the devil set Christ on the pinnacle of the temple. So not only is Jesus brought to Jerusalem, the holy city, the center of Jewish life, but he's set on the pinnacle of the temple, which is the center of Jerusalem. So the, the enemy brings him to the center, to the center. The, and the temple was the center of Jewish, Jewish religious, commercial, and political life. And you can imagine the scene, right? Just imagine it. Jesus is standing at the highest point of the temple, and the wind is blowing, whipping around. He's set on a spot from which a fall would most certainly be fatal, and he looks down at the throngs of people milling and shuffling and running about. Some are bringing their sacrifices. Others are selling animals for sacrifice. Money changers are yelling out for people, make sure you only have Jewish coins. And the poor are making their way towards the offering box with their two-coin offerings in silence and without fanfare, while Pharisees make a big show of their rather large offerings so that everyone might see how generous they are. These are the people that the Lord has entered into covenant with. These are the people that have consistently rejected the Lord and disobeyed him and remained stiff-necked. 
These are the people who would ultimately reject Christ as Messiah and rush him off to the cross, hoping to wipe their hands of this supposed blasphemer. These are the people Jesus spoke of in Matthew 23 when he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you and your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and yet, and you were not willing. And you can imagine the picture that Satan is attempting to paint for Christ. If you would simply throw yourself off this pinnacle, you can accomplish two things. You can be sure, first, you can be sure of the Father's care for you. And second, you can send a clear sign to the people that you say you love, the people that you think you are here to save. Prove to them that you are their Messiah. If you throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, the same word of God that you cling to as your food states quite clearly that the angels will protect you. They won't let any harm come to you. And as you fall, if your father is to be trusted, the skies will split open in sight of the holy city and the angels will speed to your rescue. Is there any better sign for the people? If you do this and the Father comes through, you will know He loves you and cares for you. You will know that you truly are His beloved Son. So the question is, for you, what is it that the enemy uses to make you doubt the fatherly love of God for you. What do you believe you need to know? What do you believe you need to have? What do you believe is necessary for you to know that you are his beloved? The enemy was trying to get Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple to test God's word. What is he trying to do for you? What is he trying to do to you? Going back to Israel, the idea here is, would there be any better sign for the people that you say you've come to save than for them to see such a miraculous, line, or miraculous sign in, the, in Jerusalem at the temple? They will most surely set the crown on your head and hail you as king immediately. It would be so quick. In the time it takes you to step off this pinnacle, Israel will see that you are indeed the Son of God. But Jesus, however, once again rebuffs Satan's temptation. He would instead trust his father, and as a result, instead of being hailed during, as king during his earthly life, Jesus would instead be accused of being a slob, a drunkard, and in league with Satan as he traveled the path necessary for our salvation. Jesus will trust God's word as revealed in the text of Scripture. And listen, the promises of God in Deuteronomy were enough for Jesus. Are the promises of God in Scripture enough for you? Because one of the great things, one of the great deceptions we have going on in the Christian culture of our day is that we need more than God's Word. As Kevin DeYoung says, if quoting Deuteronomy three times in rebel, in re, was enough for Jesus, it's enough for me. 
But we have a ton, a number of people who are trying to figure out how to hear from God outside of Scripture, as though that is more spiritual. It is not. Look to your Savior. Look where He goes for strength. Look at what He relies and depends on. Because it would have been very easy at this time to say, I don't feel my Father with me, and so I can't trust what He said. But even when the son may or may not have felt the father's presence with him, may or may not have felt the spirit's presence with him, he knew that the word of God always remained 100% rock solid true. And he could put, he could stake everything on it. And Moses was snared by this temptation. You remember when he was in the wilderness when he smashed his staff against the stone in disobedience, the Lord had told him, speak to the rock. But Moses, in a moment of weakness, gave into his flesh as he moved out of his role as protector and deliverer of this grumbling and complaining people of Israel, and he sought to establish and demonstrate his calling as leader over them by the performance of a sign in a moment of weakness. That's what Jesus is being tempted with here. Perform a a sign that will make everybody believe in you and stop grumbling and be quiet and just fall in line. But Moses, by striking the rock, he gave Israel a sign of his leadership rather than God's goodness and God's provision. Moses acted in disobedience to the will and the plan of the Lord. And the Lord responded to this moment. The Lord responded to this failure on Moses' part by taking the inheritance of the promised land from him. Moses would not lead the people into the promised land. Moses would not, as a result of his sin, find rest in the promised land. And Jesus would not, like Moses, trade his inheritance of a people for himself for a momentary gratification of his flesh, a momentary self-exaltation. Jesus will lead us into the promised land. He will lead us into the promised land. And so he would reject Satan's attempt and remain faithful to God's word and God's path here. And later would be vindicated by the great sign of his identity. The resurrection. A sign made clear by the Father in his good timing. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1.4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. The very thing Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt. It w- the, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's the great sign that we rest our faith on. And the temptation here is as it has always been for all of us, is the temptation to distrust the Father and instead to exalt self. And in order to buttress this temptation, Satan preaches a sermon from the very word of God that Jesus trusts so heartily. He quoted portions of Psalm 91 to Jesus. And listen, Satan accurately quoted this psalm. He had it memorized. He knew that this text did actually, in fact, ultimately apply to God's greater anointed one, Jesus. And it is true that the Lord will command his angels concerning his son. It is true that he will ensure that they guard his son in all ways. It is true that the angels will bear him up lest he strikes his foot on a stone. We see all, and we see that coming to pass at the end of this time of testing, when the angels do, in fact, come to Jesus and minister to him. So, 
If everything that Satan said and quoted about Jesus and the Father's commitment to him is true, why didn't Jesus jump? Because Jesus is a man of God's word. And Jesus, when facing these trials, quotes from Deuteronomy each time as his defense and his reason for not falling for the devil's trickery. Well, as Satan always does, he left out a rather important detail from Psalm 91. So let's, let's just read a little further in the very psalm that Satan tests Jesus with in the wilderness. It says this, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Did you catch it? The enemy quoted the angelic protection of the psalm without quoting the foundation for such angelic protection. It is precisely because Jesus holds fast to his Father in love and the Father, that the Father protects and deliver him, delivers him. To jump from the pinnacle of the temple as per Satan's test would mean betraying the Father and not holding fast to him, not trusting in his name, and the devil knows that. He always knows that his quotations of God's word are warped and twisted and aimed at leading us away from our Heavenly Father and Jesus did not buy what Satan was selling and neither should we. Like Jesus, we must be familiar with God's word. We must know it enough to battle the strategies of the enemy. And just as an exhortation to you, this is just a little bit of an aside, if your interpretation of scriptural texts aligns with or agrees with your fleshly passions and desires, that is most likely a satanic deception. The word of God from beginning to end calls upon us to put to death our worldly desires and the passions of our flesh. But sadly, in this generation, as we have seen in all previous generations, there are swaths of people who claim to love Jesus who claim to love God's word, but, but use it to permit and encourage evil, who use it to permit and encourage the sensual, sinful desires of humankind. So again, if your understanding of God's words promotes passions of your flesh, I would go back and look at the text again and come at it honestly, because you are wrong. So how does Jesus rebuff this temptation of the enemy? Well, he turns to Deuteronomy once again. Deuteronomy 6.16 to be exact, saying you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, a wider look at the context will be helpful for us here. Deuteronomy 6.16-19 says this, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Israel, so here's the context. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test and the place of that test that Jesus is referring to here is Massa. And we see this in Exodus 17. 
As Israel traveled the wilderness, they camped at a spot called Rephidim. And Exodus 17.1 tells us there was no water to drink there. Now this situation comes on the heels of God's gracious provision of manna from the skies for the people of Israel. In so doing, in so providing them this bread from heaven, the Lord was humbling and testing the people to see if they would trust him and keep his commandments. They didn't go hungry because the Lord was with them. And now soon after, the people faced another test as it became clear that there was no water. Their new campsite was bone dry. And as the people grew thirstier and thirstier, they began to quarrel and grumble, quarrel with and grumble against Moses, demanding that he give them water to drink. And Moses looked at them and said in Exodus 17 too, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? In other words, Moses is saying, Hasn't the Lord always proven himself faithful to us in bringing you up out of Egypt by great signs and miraculous wonders with great power and providing you food in the wilderness just, just a week ago? Even right now, God is providing for us food. Don't you trust God? But as the text continues in Exodus 17.3, we read that the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so the Lord directed Moses to strike the rock at Horeb and when he did, water came out and the people drank and Moses summed up this, summed up this event by writing in Exodus 17.7, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And there is the exact test that Satan is inducing Christ with. Jesus recalls this time when Israel was in the wilderness and they fell for the same test that the enemy is bringing against Jesus now. The same test that the enemy is presenting to Jesus. Will you trust God or not? Do you need a sign to trust him or will you trust his word? And glory of glories, wonder of wonders, amen and amen, Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Satan asks, test the Lord. Why don't you test the Lord and see? But for Christ to do such a thing would mean that he failed at the same point that Israel failed. However, Christ, the true and beloved Son of God, did not give in to Satan's test and trusted God's word and trusted God's will. Unlike Israel in the wilderness, the Son will not doubt the care of the Father. The Son will consistently hold fast to the truth that God is a good Father, even when we are hungry and in the wilderness. And so the twin tests that Satan assailed Christ with in this test are still tools in his arsenal that he uses against you and me today. Temptations to doubt God's love for you, if indeed you are his child by grace through faith in Jesus, and the temptation to self-exaltation. And Satan will use whichever temptation impacts you the most against you. We'll hold off on the self-exaltation test until the next time we uh, gather. 
But at this moment, I want to speak to those of you whom the enemy assails with doubts about the Father's love to you. Our example here is Jesus, right? Satan's tactic attempted to bring doubt to his mind as to the love of the Father to him. And when did Satan attempt this? He did it as Jesus faced the long and lonely period of time in the wilderness. And during this season of Christ's earthly ministry, I, it must have seemed as though the Father was distant from him. And these are, to be sure, difficult times when you have to go through them, when I go through them. For, it, for us, it is quite different, though, because we also have the added dimension of sin, which is more ammo for the enemy to use against us in his strategy of casting doubt as to the Father's love for us. And as Satan reminds us of the words, of the thoughts, of the deeds, of our continual falling into the same sin over and over, as he continues to try and make us look like the pig pen of sinfulness, as he holds up to our view everything that is wrong with us, how we spoke to our spouses yesterday, how we treated our kids the other day, how we are jealous about other people who may have things that we wish we had, as he brings all of them to our mind and says, how could God love you? How could God love someone as sinful as you? And if, you know, I'll be honest, I've had those moments in my own life where sin just, Satan just brings sin after sin to my mind and I wonder, yes, it's true, how could God love someone like me? And while we are unlike Jesus in that Jesus is sinless, we can be like Jesus based on the Holy Spirit living in us. We can be like Jesus in his response to the enemy. It wasn't his feelings of God's immediate presence that carried him through the wilderness testing. It was the truth of God's word. He knew, as, so, as should we, that regardless of how we feel in any given moment, the truth and dependability of God's promises given to us in his word remain absolutely trustworthy and absolutely true all of the time. And here is the truth of God's word. The truth that remains true whether we feel it or not. The truth that ought to sustain us in our wilderness periods when the enemy assails us in our weakness and attempts to bring about our distrust of the Father and our doubt as to his love for us. We can look at texts like Romans 5 where the Apostle Paul writes, Since we have been justified and declared right or de declared righteous by God, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we hope in the glory of God. By faith in Jesus, we have obtained access into the grace by which we stand. And God's grace is a signal of his immense and intense love for you and for me. That in Christ we are forgiven and we hope in his glory. And as the enemy assails us and tries to bring us down, we continue to run to him and we continue to confess to him like David did in full knowledge that we hope in his glory. We rest in the glory of his grace. 
And we praise him for it. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, if he is your great love, your great hope, your great goal, you have been justified. You have been declared righteous. That is a biblical truth that no matter how many times a Satan tries to assail it, it remains true. You have been declared righteous and nobody can bring any condemnation. Nobody can bring any charges against you. Mm, Satan is a liar. No matter what Satan says, if you trust Christ, your reality is righteous. And Satan hates this truth. And he hopes to rob you of the joy of this truth. Don't let him. Rest in the absolute truth of God's word in the same way Jesus did in the wilderness. Faith in Christ has set you in the grace of God at this very moment. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter how many times the enemy tries to tell you that you are too sinful and too wicked for God to love, if you have faith in Christ, you stand in the immeasurable ocean of his grace. And so hope in the glory of God this morning. Don't fall for the devil's lame attempts to bring doubt to your mind. Your heavenly Father loves you. He is always there for you, always guiding you, always providing for you, always protecting you, even when it doesn't seem like it and even when it doesn't align with how you feel like he should be protecting and providing for you. And if you don't believe that, or if somehow the enemy has brought you into a season where you doubt that, look no further than God giving you his very own son. Do we really think that he would withhold anything good from us? if he would send Jesus, his one and only son, to die for us? Scripture tells us, no way. Father, we thank you and we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you for his model. We thank you that we can look to him and have rock-solid assurance that the promises in your word are true. So I pray right now for everyone in our church who over the last few months may be... um, hearing the the words of the enemy ringing loudly in their ears, you're worthless. You can't be loved by God. You're too sinful. You're too wicked. Don't you remember what you did yesterday? Don't you remember what you did two days ago? And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would turn to God's word and we would crush all of those lies, all of those deceits, all of those devices, all of those strategies that the enemy is using to do what he did to Adam, to do what he did to uh, Israel, to do what he's done to everyone that has, everyone that has ever lived. We do not distrust the love of our Heavenly Father. And if we look at your word, Lord, we know and see quite clearly that you showed your love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we praise you for that. And we ask that you would protect us from the schemes and the wiles of the enemy. In Jesus' name, amen.